You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, sugar. I'm Erica Michelle. I host a voice diary called Brown Sugar Diaries on the Rock Candy Network, where I spill all the tea about my daily experiences, life lessons, my journey to healing and wholeness, my life as an entrepreneur, student doctor, CEO of a nonprofit, and I give my opinion on the current happenings of the world. You see why I have this voice diary? I got a lot of stuff to talk about. Tune into Brown Sugar Diaries wherever you listen to podcasts, and let's sip on this tea. is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. In this episode, I speak with attorney Adam Goldstein from FIRE the foundation for individual rights in education. In this episode, we get deep into the weeds of free speech, what it is, the difference between free speech law and free speech culture, and the broader conversation about free speech and tech platforms, the limits of tech platforms, the way free speech interacts with the right wing versus the left wing. This was a really, really interesting conversation, and I learned a lot from it, and I hope you enjoy it as well. But before we get to that, I have to thank my latest patron, My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. I truly could not do this without them. They ensure the long life of this show and that I can continue to bring you interesting content every single week. So for this week, I have to thank my latest patron, Angie. I so appreciate it, Angie. I truly could not do this without you, especially right now when I'm working less because of COVID. And if you want to join her number, maybe maybe she's not a her, maybe he's a he or a they. If you want to join their number, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar a month, $3, $5, you get extra content every week, including the House of Heretics podcast, as well as early access to content. However, if you are unable to give right now because the economy is in fact on fire and we are all struggling, I completely understand. There are a few simple ways that you can support this show. One of the ways is to just subscribe wherever you are listening to this, whatever podcatcher you're on, just hit subscribe. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. All of that tells our algorithmic overlords that the show is worth sharing with others. And if you are on social media, please share it there. Share it with your friends. Spread the satanic love. As always, special thanks to my editor and producer, 
Dante slash Llama Boy. He edited this episode. Also, special thanks to my Discord server. There is a link to my Discord server in the show notes. It is a fantastic little community. And I also need to shout out my sponsor, thesatanictemple.tv, a streaming platform by and for Satanists or the Satanic adjacent. You can get one month free by using my promo code, SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout. Please take advantage of that. There is all kinds of fascinating, interesting, enjoyable stuff on the satanictemple.tv. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Adam Goldstein. Adam Goldstein, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to have you on to talk specifically about free speech. You know, I am a degenerate far leftist. And, you know, in in my space, in my sphere that I run in, there's a lot of discussion about the limits of speech, how we should navigate speech, how we should navigate the speech of others. And I think that there is a lot of discourse and also a lot of confusion about this subject. And so I wanted to have you on to talk specifically about that. But before we get into it, tell us some about who you are, what you do, and the work of FIRE, which is your organization. Absolutely. Well, as you said, I'm, I'm Adam Goldstein, and I still am. And at the moment, I'm a senior research counsel, which essentially means they come up with difficult questions and I try to answer them for the uh, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Oh, that's perfect. So you can answer our difficult questions. <laughs> that's what they pay me to do is I, I sit there and I think about the big questions and, and think try to think about the best answers for them. Beautiful, beautiful. I started at FIRE in uh, November 2016. And then for 13 years before that, I worked for a place called the Student Press Law Center. At the Student Press Law Center, I gave legal help to high school and college journalists and now at FIRE, I give help to college students, whether they're journalists or not, about their free speech rights. And FIRE is a, I could call it militant nonpartisan in that we help, if, if there's a speech problem, we want to be there to help it. It doesn't matter what the ideology underlying it is. If there's a, or an end due process and individual rights in general, my specialty being free expression, obviously. So the work of FIRE, say what that acronym stands for one more time. Sure. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Great. So FIRE focuses specifically on academic freedom and, and liberty within academia. Is that correct? Freedom within a campus or connected to a campus. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Okay. Very good. And, uh, you know, I first encountered the work of FIRE through Greg Lukianoff, of course, who is the president of FIRE. I read his book that he co-authored with Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind, which was very, very interesting. And that kind of led me down the rabbit hole to FIRE and checking out the work that all of you do. So let's just start really, really simple. What is free speech? Well, free speech is... A fundamental individual liberty is how I might characterize it. It's the, and I would argue it's the most fundamental individual liberty, which is unpopular to say right after an election, because whenever an election t season comes around, then all the voting rights advocates want to tell you that voting is the most fundamental liberty. I think that even before you can vote, you have to, you have to be able to campaign and to campaign, you have to be able to speak. So fr freedom of speech is the liberty to express any idea up until the point where it causes the government to cease to function or it or it uh, prevents the ordinary operation of a campus, I guess, if you want to look at it within the campus context. So 
I would interpret what you're saying as speech is permissible up until, you know, your your fist ends at my face, kind of, that kind of situation. That is, is also okay. why there's a lot of discussion and misunderstanding about free speech right now, because the concept of where rights begin or end has, well, it's always in flux to a degree, but it's been bent so far that it's almost you know, becoming a full circle where there's there's some circular reasoning as to where rights should begin mm. or end. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I really see two kind of broad spheres in which the free speech discussion takes place. One is the sphere of law and the First Amendment. And then the next sphere is free speech culture, free speech as a cultural issue. And that makes, does, does that make sense? Perfect sense. And I think that's a discussion I wish more people were having right now because that okay, great. You can't understand one without the other. So I think free speech law, First Amendment issues tend to be maybe a bit clearer. I, when I think about speech and offense and debate and, and all of this stuff in our culture, the First Amendment stuff tends to be pretty clear to me. Whereas free speech culture issues, that's where stuff gets more complicated for me, right? And so let's talk about First Amendment. What qualifies as a First Amendment issue? Well, something becomes a First Amendment issue when some government officer, and since 1925, that can be federal or state government. Before 1925, it was just Congress, right? And then the Supreme Court started to incorporate these protections into the 14th Amendment, saying that, well, if the states can't abridge your rights, then they have to respect your First Amendment rights. So some government officer takes some action that either punishes, encourages, or attempts to control the speech of a private citizen, or in some contexts, like in the education sphere, an employee, because with higher education, there's a concept of academic freedom, which is sort of not quite the same as the First Amendment, but is sort of related to the First Amendment. Now, is that is it related because, say, state schools take money from the government and therefore, say, if a principal tried to crack down on a uh, pro-Palestinian protest, that would that would be a, a First Amendment issue at, say, a state school? Right, exactly. That it, there's, okay. If, if you've got a state school, and in some cases, there's some states where even being a private school might not necessarily exempt you from a state-imposed obligation to respect the speech rights of those of, of, of certain demographic groups. And uh, I, I say that because two of the biggest states have laws that would interfere with the ability of a private school to do that. California has a law called the Leonard Law that says on a private campus, well, actually, they have it for both K-12 and for higher ed, no private education organization can discipline a student for speech that would be protected off campus by the First Amendment or the California Constitution. So state universities, state schools, if, say, a principal or an administrator cracked down on a deviant Satanist like me <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> you know, for speech, that would be a First Amendment issue. And then at a private school, depending on the state, it is also a First Amendment issue. Right. Okay. I mean, and New York, and the reason I, I thought about this is because you mentioned pro-Palestinian activism. And my alma mater pains me to say Fordham University in New York is obviously, it's, it's a private institution. It's a Jesuit institution. Doesn't take state money. But our New York has this civil rights law called Article 78. It's a very strange New York specific thing where... 
if a private school has engaged in a decision that is considered either arbitrary or insufficiently based in fact, you can actually go to a state court and have the decision overturned. And there's a battle going through right now because Fordham for over four years now has tried to prevent the formation of a Palestinian rights club or, or Palestinian support club, I guess you might call it. And, and, the, and the Fordham's argument was we don't want to have a explicitly political student organization. This is a place where there's college Republicans, college Democrats, college libertarians, somehow pro-Palestinian advocacy. Now, and there's also, you know, there's like a Muslim Students Association, a Jewish Students Association. I wouldn't say that Fordham is apolitical. There's a political science department. So the idea that this is somehow advocacy on behalf of Palestinians is somehow this line that can't be crossed without undoing the fabric of Fordham. Well, I spent seven years there between undergrad and law school. I have no idea what they're talking about. Right. And so First Amendment protections is to deal with situations like that where and, and it seems like it is based purely on a maybe disgust response or a fear response that someone's speech or an offense response that someone's speech is is, I guess, dangerous in some way. And, you know, that this is really important to me and because I am a uh, degenerate faggot Satanist and there are so many people in this country who would want to silence me. Right. There are so many people who would want me to not have the platform I have on this podcast. There are people who think that I am leading hundreds and thousands of people astray. I know that because they've told me as much. And so to me, because I am a minority, I am a religious minority, I am a sexual minority, my, my work and my life is only possible because I have free speech protection and because offense alone is not a good litmus test for who gets to be silent or not. Do you think that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you've tapped into something that I think nobody gets viscerally. They have to live through some bad experiences to reach the point you're at, which because uh, a lot of times I'll go to campus and what you'll hear is, you know, if I'm a student who's I'm I'm a minority, I don't want people to say things that make me feel unsafe. So I think that we need to have rules that stop other people from saying things that would make me feel unsafe. And at, at a base level, it sounds good until you've lived through a couple of situations and you start to realize if the basic problem I'm having is that I'm not part of the powerful group, giving the powerful group more power to stop things will never work to my benefit. There's a there's a blowback. <laughs> that that if, I'm, if I'm the out group, I can't ask the people in power here, people in power have more authority to stop what people are doing as if they're going to use it to protect me. It doesn't work. We've tried it many times and like the history is full, especially recent European history of states that are giving authority to the government to, to stop speech on the theory that that benefit will accrue to the disenfranchised. It does not ever, <laughs> not in the long run, maybe for like a week. And, and, you know, minorities and minority religions, minority identities, we are the first ones who are silenced. Who do I think will be the first ones to be silenced? When there is a change in regime or when I give the power to other people to shut someone down based purely on offense, it's going to be me. It's going to be my fellow LGBT people and people of color. You know, that's just the way it's going to be. So that's the that that's the situation in kind of the First Amendment sphere and the First Amendment really 
my understanding is that it's there to to protect all that, to protect uh, the ability for people to to kind of slug it out verbally, right? And none of this means that there can't be vicious debate, oh, absolutely. <laughs> right? Well, also, and I think yeah, this is kind yeah, of what of, you're tapping yeah, into that I I have to explain to people is it's very easy to fall in love with the First Amendment, and and I I did too in my life, and and to fall in love with it in the sense of put on a pedestal and say, this is, should be the, this is the North Star, this is the guiding light of our society. The First Amendment is the lowest level of acceptable behavior before American society ceases to function. That doesn't make it a good idea in terms of like how we should guide our principles. It's like the law is meant to stop us from falling apart as a country. It doesn't make moral choices for us. It doesn't tell us what is right or wrong. The, the idea that like you have the First Amendment and you're done and like society is, is gonna work the way you want it to, is naive I, in, in, in the sense that like we, the first amendment is important and fundamental, but it's the, it's the baseline. So when people say, well, it's okay to ban somebody from social media because the fir- that doesn't implicate the first amendment. That's the legal equivalent of I'm, a, I'm 18 and I can do what I want. You know, if someone sees me cutting my toenails with a chainsaw and they say, you know, that's probably not a good idea. And my response is I'm 18, I can do what I want. I'm legally correct, but I might still be an idiot. So, and this is where we okay, get into got free speech it. culture. This idea that- yes. The First Amendment is what we must do. Free speech culture is what we should do. And thank you so much for that image that is going to haunt me for the rest of my life now. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a lot, of, a lot of times like, hey, it doesn't violate the First Amendment to do this. It's like, what is it? Not breaking the law is what you're supposed to do. All right. Like, like you don't get you don't get credit because you didn't break the you didn't violate the First Amendment. That's like, that's right. like, I, t- I take care of my kids. Right. That's, that's the same thing. We're like doing the bare minimum legally does not make you a good person or may mean you're doing a good thing. It just means I don't, I won't imprison you. That's That's a great, that is a fantastic point to make because I do sometimes I, and, and I maybe let's put a pin in this, but I, I do sometimes see, especially on the internet kind of being free speech, free speech as a anarchy of bad ideas, just let, we're not going to push back on them. And that, is a misunderstanding of free speech. It's like what you're saying. This is a total baseline of of how society should run, but it doesn't tell us anything about how to be moral. So before we move on, let's talk about the public square. What is that? And how does how does the First Amendment apply to that setting? The, the public square, there's the there's this concept of like the, the public forum test. And for a period from the late 60s into the early 80s, the Supreme Court was in love with public forum tests. So now it's written into all of our free, free speech law. There's different types of public, f- well, I'm going to say forums. I'm going to de-Latinization. I would say fora, right, the, as, as the proper Latin plural, but I'm trying to get, try, I'm trying to de-Latin myself a little bit, get more <laughs> plain, you know, plain spoken. When in Rome. So, <laughs> forums, yes. You have right, to talk exactly. to a stupid, not in Rome. you have to talk it's, to a stupid like, gay bro like me. So tone it down some. <laughs> I have to talk to a lot of people. Like, <laughs> And like, you know, and I, th- I think in general, there's this, that it's, it's stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's a little thing, but it's stuff like that, that makes people think lawyers are another species. Like, can we just talk to people like people? You mean they time? aren't, you know, lawyers remind me of, of like <laughs> so many lawyers remind me of the Vogans from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Just <laughs> I, I'll tell you, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than like watching a lawyer on TV sometimes thinking, oh, that's why everybody hates us. <laughs> like, this is, 
All the, I'm already mad at this guy because he's because he's being a jerk or whatever. And on top of this, now when I go out, people think of him. That sucks. Yep. yep. Okay. Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can humanize the lawyer some in this interview. Right. It's a public forum. <laughs> yes. This is yes. What we're talking about. The there's the traditional public forum, which is like the steps of City Hall, the Speaker's Corner in the park, the places where since the dawn of Western civilization, we would expect people to go out and be able to speak unmolested. At least unmolested by by the state. Put it that way. Sometimes there might be some shouting, but uh, usually that's the, where there's a right to speak truth to power. The steps of City Hall is, is is another classic one. There's then the designated public forum, a place that isn't traditionally a public forum, but we as a society have sort of come together to say we think this is where we want speakers to be, and especially in the context of like religions and alternative religions, the big one there would be the meeting rooms and public libraries for for a whole generation of people. That's where like you would go if nobody else would give you a room, you know, whether whether, you know, you're, you're practicing an alternative religion or you just want to play Dungeons and Dragons, you could go to the public library and get a meeting room like anybody else. There's then also this concept of the limited public forum, which is a public forum that's set aside for one particular speaker or set of speakers or one particular purpose. You'll see this when like the town council will say, city council, we're gonna have a public forum on retirement unlike retirement funds. You can come up and say anything you want to about retirement funds. You don't have, you don't have a right to speak freely in general, but if you're on topic, you can say whatever you want. And in the college context, you see a lot of designated public forums for students where any student can come and, and complain about you know, the college's racial equity record, or any student can come and hand out flyers for their club. So that's the that's the designated public forum. The pandemic is not the main reason for this, but it it's factored into this idea that increasingly private spaces have taken over and encroached on that just through evolution of society where you're much more likely to want to post on a privately owned social media site about your club than you are to want to go stand in the quad about your and talk about your club. Hmm. Unfortunately, in mostly every case, put a little asterisk there for a second, <laughs> mostly every case, those places have just not been recognized as forums for the general public. They're still private property in some sense. And that means your right to speak there is limited to whatever the owner wishes to extend. Even. Okay, so now this gets into free speech culture, right? And so, and this is, I feel like, particularly complicated. And, you know, I have spent how many untold hours on this podcast and off just trying to talk through this stuff because I feel like the emergence of social media and these tech giants that are so huge almost to almost to the point of being invisible that our public square has been privatized in a way and it has not just been privatized but it's been privatized with you know multi-billion dollar algorithms that are incredibly powerful, atomize society, radicalize us, cause disinformation, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So this is this feels like a totally new era that we're in. And it, and it's hard to kind of get my footing in terms of how I think about it because it's so new and it's so big. What are your thoughts on that? What I just said. There, there's a lot of scary layers to it. I mean, for one, th to, to, to sort of go down one thread that spoke to me Im immediately was the idea that we, we don't realize how fractured we've become in the sense of it's not even transparent to us how reactive our social media sites and just our media sites in general are to our interests. Yeah. And we see it in little ways, right? Like we see like we were thinking about going going to Hawaii and then three days later, there's ads for snorkels on our Facebook, right? Like it's little stuff like or that. butt plugs. Whatever you're in, whatever, pe whatever, 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 browsing, whatever people right. are into. <laughs> like, leather, you know, it's, it's all, it's exactly. all, but like you, 
And like you were having a conversation about it and maybe, you know, the echo heard you or whatever. And, and, and maybe you're paranoid or maybe there's something The things there. my echo hears in my household. I don't, I, <laughs> Amazon has so much shit on me. <laughs> it's like those t-shirts. If I'm not on list, somebody's not doing their job. Yep, like, <laughs> yep, exactly. I remember like 20 years ago when, remember we used to have homepages on like Yahoo mm-hmm. and, and you could personalize your news. And I was thinking, is this really a good idea? Because the most important thing in journalism was editorial judgment. And you're now giving up your editorial judgment to an algorithm that's going to decide, oh, he doesn't like seeing stories about disasters. He likes seeing stories about football. So I'm going to give him more football yeah. stories. It's like, well, I appreciate the effort, but maybe you should tell me about the disaster too. Mm. Where like, we're, we're not necessarily even working off the, off the same, off, off the same choir book, so to speak, where like we're, we're seeing different realities to to a different degree. And, and when people start to spin news stories in little ways, emphasize certain facts, drop other facts, when, and those make the circles within our little, our, our bubbles of social circles, we end up with sort of a group think limited to one bubble that is incompatible with the group think in a second bubble discussing the same event because we're not, we're not getting the, share, the same shared information, mm. or at least pr- presented the same way. Let me ask a question that I think applies to both of these fears of First Amendment and free speech culture. Let's go ahead and bring up Godwin's law. So let's let's take a Nazi. Let's take a neo-Nazi. Where is the line between his speech and inciting violence? Because a lot of a lot of people would see his speech as fundamentally hateful and fundamentally inciting violence. And so where is the line cultural or or, or where is the line between inciting violence and free speech. Incitement is is tough to do. Okay. I know and and we, people have been throwing around that word a lot and it makes me very nervous because m- one of my big concerns is we start to erode what the definition of incitement is because it really is a very limited series of things. It requires first of all there has to be an imminent chance this this thing could happen. There has to be a receptive audience that wants to do this thing. And, I, and it has to be something that I could say that triggers the audience to do this thing they weren't going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of pieces to that, that I think a lot of things we've been calling incitement don't, the dominoes don't quite all stack up. Okay. Where if I'm saying this to an audience that isn't physically there, or that I have no reason to think is going to imminently be able to carry this out, I'm not really inciting them. And, and there's a great deal of political hyperbole that we've protected for years where, you know, encouraging people to be angry isn't the same thing as encouraging them to storm a building. Encouraging people to get politically active isn't the same thing as, as encouraging them to assassinate someone, mm. right? These are, there's different pieces here. Now, you, you can make hypotheticals where you say, okay, I see the mob, they're outside, they've got torches and pitchforks, and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say, let's go in there and rip their guts out. That might be incitement. Would what Donald Trump did at the Capitol, would that be considered incitement in that very narrow sense? I know there's a lot of people who would who would disagree with me on that and a lot of legal legal scholars who would. I've watched the tape and I, I can't see it. Okay. I'm not seeing because he certainly encourages them to go to the Capitol. But going to the Capitol isn't illegal. That's not the thing that they did that was illegal. You know, he didn't say go hang Pence. He didn't say he said we're, we're going to go there and give and give our Republican legislators courage to do the right thing. Well, giving people courage is sort of almost like a homework movie standing outside and everybody says, oh, they're all out there. I'm going to go do the right thing. I, I didn't see the incitement to imminent lawless action. I mean, that's okay. That's the second part. People say incitement. The whole thing is incitement to imminent lawless action. Okay. So the action, you have to be calling for something illegal, and, the, and it has to be something that's going to happen immediately. There was imminent action, 
but I didn't hear him say do something illegally. So that's where for, for me, I don't think it quite met the standard. I know there's people who would disagree. Okay. But, but I'm, I'm very worried if we start saying some things are incitement, if they don't actually call for someone to do something illegal, all kinds of things are, are incitement that might end up encouraging people to do illegal things. But, but, you know, I don't know that if I say we should go do something about our taxes and somebody burns down the IRS, well, I didn't tell them to burn down the IRS. Okay, got it. You know? So, okay, so let's parse this out some. So let's say, you know, I'm a radio personality and part of my whole platform is a lab. All lawyers are bastards, okay? And lawyers <laughs> are actually, you know, reptilian overlords. They are actually the Vogans. They are here to destroy the human race and uh, they all deserve to be dead. Would that be incitement? Unless there's some other facts, that still sounds like just political hyperbole. Okay, so then let's say I take it a step further. Let's say all lawyers are bastards. They are all monsters. They are our reptilian overlords. Now I want all of my followers to glitter bomb every free speech lawyer in the country. That would be incitement. That sound, that that could be incitement. I mean, okay. if you've got any reason to think somebody might actually do it. Now it's incitement to a pretty minor, minor battery. <laughs> right? like glitter bombing. It's like... <laughs> You might get you might get a sternly worded letter from the DA. I don't think they're going to be throwing anybody in jail for that for, for inciting a glitter bomb. Okay. <laughs> well, fortunately, my you know I'm very much a pacifist, so you know the the <laughs> only incitement that I will ever be doing would be uh may, you know something like glitter bombing. So, <laughs> okay, interesting. So. When people say we should shut down Nazis because of their toxic beliefs, because their beliefs are fundamentally hateful, that is something that the government would not be able to do. Right. The government couldn't participate in that. And in fact, if it was in a public space, like like an actual like like a park or a college campus where they've where they've booked a meeting room, the government would have an affirmative obligation to prevent the deplatforming of the Nazi there. The government actually, that's and that's the heckler's veto doctrine, that if the government stands by and does nothing in a government space while someone is censored, then the government is essentially using its power to endorse the censorship, and their obligation is to stop okay. the interference with the speech. Okay. Which doesn't mean silencing the dissent. It means moving the dissent to a place where both speeches can take place. And, okay. And as Betsy DeVos because I, I was at, she went, spoke at George Mason early in her, in her term as uh, education secretary, there were a lot of people standing right outside expressing themselves and they had managed to move, you know, kudos to the administration there to move the protesters to where, to where you could hear the protesters inside the event, but they didn't stop the event from happening. And you could hear the speech outside the event, but they didn't stop the protest. It, you know, it's not always going to be as perfect as it was in that instance, but it's nice when it does work okay, out. Okay, great. So I think what I'm hearing you say is free speech does not mean not pushing back. It doesn't mean not trying to win the argument. It doesn't mean, you know, arguing as viciously as you can. What it does mean is that the government cannot infringe on speech unless it meets the very narrow definitions of things like incitement. I've heard libel and slander in there as well. Yeah, defamation is is unlawful if it meets that standard. Okay. Copyright infringement is probably the biggest category that goes unpunished. Okay. Um, that there's probably more copyright. You know, in, in our life, everyone who publishes is worried about defamation. In your lifetime, you, you, you probably see 
five or six instances of defamation, whereas you'll probably see 500 or 600 instances of copyright infringement. But nobody yeah. thinks about it because it's sort of it's in the water a little bit. In, in, it's so ubiquitous. Right. So there's a meme that kind of goes around on leftist spaces, and it is a cartoon of Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance. Are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with the paradox of tolerance. I'm not familiar with the cartoon. So this started circulating, I think, after the Charlottesville rally. Basically, the application of the paradox of tolerance, this cartoon reads, should a tolerant society tolerate intolerance? The answer is no. It's a paradox, but unlimited tolerance can lead to the extinction of tolerance. When we extend tolerance to those who are openly intolerant, the tolerant ones end up being destroyed and tolerance with them. Any movement that preaches intolerance and persecution must be outside of the law. As paradoxical as it may seem, defending tolerance requires to not tolerate intolerance. So this is not actually the exact quote from Karl Popper. I don't think he included the must be outside the law part, but this is kind of a, a re-envisioning of Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, which was in a footnote. In, in one of his books. So I, I see this as a very popular meme in a lot of leftist spaces. Is this meme a healthy way to look at free speech? Oh, I think it's this is another example of it sounds great on paper, but if you've lived it, you, you know, it doesn't work. Okay. I mean, this is essentially the same rationalization that's used by China. Okay. This idea that d domestic, except, you know, they, they call it domestic tranquility. They don't call it tolerance. But this idea that you can have any opinion you want to as long as it doesn't challenge domestic tranquility. And by domestic tranquility, we mean the government. Domestic tranquility, by the way, sounds like the sketchiest drug ever that I, <laughs> I would try, I would, it, I once, would try it once. Because like, I want to know, is, but like, yeah. Is it like I, adrenochrome? I'd be I wouldn't be able to like do anything. Like I took, I, I dropped domestic tranquility once. I woke up three days later. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, go on. Yeah, like that's that's the problem is that if you've decided that in the name of tolerance, you're going to suppress intolerance, you have decided what tolerance means, and you've decided what intolerance means. And having done that commits you to a perspective that entrenches one viewpoint and suppresses others. It's, it's an irreconcilable position with actual liberty where because once you've said we must be intolerant of intolerance, you've said intolerance is good as long as it's Intolerance in the direction I think is is the right direction. And who watches the Watchmen, in other words? Exactly. We, okay. I, we have the same problem with something else that people have been making. God, the number of bad legal takes on social media that this this month has been soul crushing. <laughs> One is that people have said, "Oh, the First Amendment doesn't protect falsehood." First of all, it does. That's completely wrong. Falsehood. And if if you really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of it, we don't talk about it a lot because it isn't exactly the most patriotic discussion to have. But like. Objectively speaking, the, the, the central premise of the Declaration of, of Independence was incorrect, right? <laughs> like mathematically, we were getting a good deal in terms of our taxes. Mathematically speaking, we were paying less for the same services that, they, that British subjects were paying over there. The, the, there's, I think everyone has sort of discussed that much of the premise of the Civil War was questionable. The idea that the colonies viewed the Constitution as a blood pact that they could only leave through death was was probably alien to them. And yet that was a, that was the central conceit of we must save the union. Hmm. So the First Amendment has always protected falsehood. OK. And, and the reason why it has to protect falsehood is because who decides what's true? 
Right. It's the same problem with who decides what's tolerance, who decides what's intolerance. So how how do we how do you reconcile the hurt and pain that say racist speech causes to black people or the hurt and pain that transphobic speech causes to trans people with free speech how does that how does in, in how does this way, work and i should say in, in in some way it isn't fully reconcilable i mean there, there will never be a point of complete tranquility in a in any free space right the, liberty presupposes the ability to hurt people to some degree emotionally not physically and the the best I think we can do is what we've always tried to do, right? Is is to is to support people who are in pain, and to be the better alternative to the things we see that are wrong. To win those to win those arguments mm. that inevitably come up. But there's a there was kind of an in exchange. This is a little bit of a weird analogy, but it, it, it's the shortest encapsulation I can think of of how to explain why inefficiency is sometimes good. Uh, and it was the 1980s. It was a Supreme Court appeal during the, the Rehnquist Court. And it was the third appeal of a death penalty sentence. And Rehnquist had read, had read out, trying to be clever, make a point, how much it was costing the state to deal with this guy's death penalty appeals, even though they seemed frivolous to him. And at some point, Thurgood Marshall, now it, the Supreme Court does not normally talk to each other. They talk to the attorneys. So this was a breach of protocol. Thurgood Marshall turned in his chair and looked at Rehnquist and said it would have been cheaper to shoot him when they arrested him, wouldn't it? And the, the, the core idea is that liberty is, is an expenditure. It's always cheaper, it's always faster, it's always less fractious to give people less liberty. Because liberty is the freedom to do things that are terrible to people, and it's the freedom to say things that are terrible and to hurt people. The problem is, as, as we were talking about, if you create a world where someone has the power to silence you, or someone has the power to silence your enemy, they will turn it around to you at the first opportunity and maybe sooner. And that's actually, I mean, this is not, again, this is not a perfect analogy, but during the Obama administration, we saw the senators change rules to get judges approved because they because the Democrats didn't have 60 votes and that was the tradition. So they used the nuclear option and for everything but the Supreme Court reduced it to 50 votes, right? Right. And as soon as the Republicans were back in power, they did the exact same thing. And then they packed judges the other way and, and they removed it for the Supreme Court. And that's how you got the Supreme Court we have now. The analogy there is, you know, if you create weapons because your opponent is terrible, they will eventually use them on you. <laughs> and this is... It's like an arms race. It, it really is. And, mm. and so th this is, again, where the culture and the law don't necessarily align. I think the law requires us to permit people to say things that are going to cause actual, real psychological harm to other people. Right. And our obligation culturally is to do everything we can to ensure that one, those people realize if they, if they intend to make themselves pariahs, let them make themselves pariahs. But two, to offer the support necessary to show the people who are the victims of that to say, you know what, those people are messed in the head. And I think that it, even in censorship is the most important thing. If, if at, like victims of, of censorship, I, I worry in, you know, in the K-12 space, students get cynical about the First Amendment because they're censored through their college, through their high school experience. Yes. The most important thing they need to know is that this is an aberration. This isn't normal. This isn't right. And I think that's also true for when people say hateful things about other groups. The most important thing for anybody who's a victim of that kind of speech to know is you're right, they're wrong. And, and we're going to be here with you, even though we're not going to try to imprison them for, 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 for being jerks, essentially. Right. And so... I can see how 
you know, culturally we can do that, how culturally we can stand on the side of trans people, is that something the government can do as well in terms of providing resources, in terms of equal rights, oh, absolutely. That, that kind of stuff, right? Okay. And, and, and it absolutely should, yeah. And that's, and that's something that in terms of free speech, we don't, we don't always appreciate, is that the government is entitled to be a speaker and it's allowed to have opinions about some things. And mm. certainly one thing it's allowed to have an, have an opinion about is like, the right of everyone to feel safe and secure and be part of this participatory society. So to the extent it's necessary for the government to step in and make specific regulations. And, that, and that's where you get into things with like workplace discrimination, where the government actually can step in and say, hey, this guy's allowed to be a transphobe if he wants to be a transphobe. But if he's being a transphobe during work hours and it's causing your employees to feel uncomfortable or unsafe, your obligation as the employer is to fi is either fire that guy or silence that guy. Because you have an obligation to make sure that everyone feels like they can work there. Brilliant. So I, I run a Discord server for this podcast, and I think one of, and it's a pretty awesome server, by the way, shout out to my Discord server. They're amazing, and you should all go join the Sacred Tension Dis Discord server. There is a link in the show notes. I think one of the reasons why the server works so well is because there are rules, right? There, there are rules to the server. You know, I've just learned that you know, you know, when, when I was putting this together with my mods, you know, uh, people who are quote unquote TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, having them on on the discord server just creates a horrible, toxic atmosphere and disrupts the peace of my private little discord server. Therefore, I am com it is completely within my right to say, you know what, in order to maintain the peace and tranquility of this server, we're just not going to have certain conversations here that this is just not going to happen because this is this is the way that I maintain the peace on the server. You know, an, another example, Yasha Monk and Ezra Klein were arguing on a podcast recently, and Ezra Klein brought up the point that one of the most peaceful places on the internet was Reddit or subreddit slash uh, T, T-E-A, and it's just pictures of tea. It's just, you know, pictures of, of people drinking tea and, and people's favorite tea. And one of the things on that subreddit is conversations about the health benefits of tea are banned because they just learned... <laughs> They just learned that people start fighting over the health benefits of tea and it disrupts the chill of sub of that subreddit. Is that a free speech issue? Uh, no, I mean, it's, okay, it's, you know... <laughs> because there are so many people who say that would be that I have encountered on the Internet. I, yeah, I, there's, I, you know, the the um, University of Twitter law degrees out there, uh, the, 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 <laughs> you know, to the extent and, and especially, especially something like 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 discord, like your server is your home and you can invite people in your home or kick them out if you want to. There's also something to be said in terms of free discourse of to get to the really nuanced questions and the rarefied issues. You have to stop debating the big like the big stuff at some point. Right. And this is and this has been a lot of the issue about like, I mean, this is this isn't this isn't the issue of it, but one of the reasons why all lives matter became so offensive was it was being used as a bludgeon to derail conversations about the specific threats mm. that the black community was facing correct yeah and that was not hostility to all lives matter was not because anybody thought all lives didn't matter it was hostility to all lives matter was because when when you're trying to get into like really specific nuanced issues and like one of those really nuanced issues just for example that is is hotly debated elsewhere too is why why is why our interactions between people of color in general and black people in particular and law enforcement so deadly. And 
is it because they're more likely to be shot in the interaction or because there are more interactions? And it looks like it's, it's the latter, that it's not so much a question of like, once the interaction starts, the rate at which people are shot is not, is, is not differentiated by race at all. But the issue is that if you're in a heavily policed community because of broken windows policing or stop and frisk or whatever. Yeah, because of, of like basically a militarized occupation. Right. If, if you have one interaction with a cop every 10 years, your odds are going to be you know, 0.001. And if you have 10 interactions with a cop every year, it's 0.001 per interaction. Mm. And so that, but, but that's a conversation you can't get into until you get past all lives matter, right? Because, because if, mm. if we say, oh, we're not going to pay any special attention to any group because all lives matter, then you end up not. So in the same thing about having conversations about trans identity and the struggles the trans community faces, it's fine to, to have arguments, to have arguments with TERFs, but you can't have those, those second level conversations if all you're doing is arguing with Exactly. Turfs. Yes. So Thank you for saying that. Have those, like, <laughs> those, you, need, you need those spaces as part of free speech. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. You know, I, as a content creator, I have free speech and I get to determine who is and is not on my platform, who is and is not on my discord. I am the queen. I can behead anyone. Figuratively, I'm not inciting violence. Um, <laughs> of course, you know, where that gets where that gets complicated is when at some point you become Amazon. Yes. OK, so thank you. So let's let's actually segue into Amazon, because here's here's the thing I'm going to put on my little paranoid leftist hat on. So let's talk about Amazon and Parler. So Parler was just recently nuked from the internet by Amazon. I see that and I have two very conflicting emotions. The first and biggest emotion is honestly just my gut reaction is great, wonderful, because I was on Parler <laughs> to spy on it. I went by the username Hagrid's Come Slut because it was all about, you know, free speech and free expression and being yourself. And so I decided that I would just flaunt my full degenerate self. And so I was on there as Hagrid's Come Slut. And I, you know, watched all the insanity that was going on. And I was like, this is true. The body politic should truly not tolerate this. The body politic, we should decide collectively as the populace that this is unacceptable. And so my first response and kind of biggest response to Amazon being kicked off was fantastic. Same with Alex Jones. Same with you know, Stefan Molyneux, so on and so forth. But then there's a second thought. And that second thought is my paranoid leftist hat, which is when is that going to happen to me? And how how do we determine the rightness or wrongness of a platform like that, especially when it's private and Amazon is private? And yet the public square has been privatized in a lot of ways. And we know what happens when people get kicked off of them. Milo Yiannopoulos is done. Stefan Molyneux is done. Alex Jones isn't done, but that's because he's like a fucking hurricane and will never be done until he has a hemorrhage on camera <laughs> while screaming about gay frogs. Right. But in but in general, in general, it's like we know where when Stefan Molyneux was deplatformed, we know where he went. He went to Gab or, or he went to to places like that where there just is not the audience. And that's the end. Right. Same with Milo. That's the end. And my first response is, good. These people should be forced out of culture. They should be forced out of public discourse. That, that's, that's like my first response. And then it just gets way more complicated the moment I get deeper than that. I don't know. Could you help me figure this shit out? I think so. Maybe. I, I, I had a similar, a similar first response, I guess, although mine was, if they had had this level of coordination a couple of years ago, we wouldn't know who Edward Snowden was. 
because they would have erased him from existence and we never would have heard of, we never would have known his name. Glenn Greenwald wouldn't be anybody we would know. They would have deleted their accounts. Yeah. That would have been it. And maybe that's me being extremely paranoid. But at, at some point, I think a, a, Amazon is easy. Yes, well, please. Let's, let's, let's start, start with Amazon. Amazon. That's the easiest one. When you're controlling a third of web traffic, at this point, I think that, and, and this is this is my opinion. This isn't Fire's position. I don't forget Fire's nowhere near having a, having a position on this because it's so far okay. off campus. But I, I, I start to worry that why aren't we treating Amazon like a common carrier in the same way we would treat a phone company or a water company? And that like, if you're, you know, the argument for years had been, well, you don't really need the internet. And I just don't think that argument, well, holds water to- No, not at all. Anymore. I think that is now a basic thing that should be a utility. And everybody should have the right to kick somebody out of their home until your home constitutes a third of the possible places there are to stand in the world. <laughs> At that point, I'd say, you are now the phone company. You are now the water company. You have to sell this to everybody with the money to buy it. Even yeah, if you without the them. internet, I'd be a bag lady. <laughs> like, for like, real. Like, I don't want the sewage company to say, oh, you can't flush your toilet anymore because we read your Twitter account. Like, that's my concern. It's like, th- that to me is a level of control over individual lives. We shouldn't give any corporation that, that controls that much stuff. So making it a public utility, would that mean that, and maybe this is just a basic confusion on my part, but would that mean giving the government the power to determine what is or is not acceptable on the platform? And is that a problem? Well, to an extent, except the government would still be bound by the First Amendment. Okay. So it would be imposing the standards of the First Amendment upon that, even if it stayed private, you could still regulate it by that standard. That's how we've regulated utilities in general, where you can have a private power company uh, although uh, it didn't work out for California, but there are places where there's private power companies and, and private you know, public works companies. And in those places, they're still regulated by the government to the extent that they can't just decide they didn't like what someone's speech was and cut off their water. If someone pays their bill, they've got to sell them the water. We're talking about a very narrow slice. Of, like we're talking about the Oracles, the Amazons, uh, people who own- A very, very narrow, who just provide servers. Right, like they're, they're not- in, in this context, they're not a content publisher. Obviously, Amazon's a content publisher, but they'll sell they'll sell you space for anybody's content. The the, the concern, I, you know, I'm okay with kicking people out of out of private homes or out of private companies' stuff. I'm uncomfortable with the idea that you can kick them functionally offline. One is that, as you pointed out, it doesn't actually change their their beliefs. They just become harder to police. Yeah. Like right now, there's this thing about is it Parler that's getting space from 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 Russia now. And bandwidth from Russia. So not only do we not have an easy way to police them, but people we probably don't want them talking to Are have now, an easy way to talk right. to them. So it just got even worse. Okay, that's interesting. So now let's talk about something like Twitter or Facebook. The banning of Donald Trump, for example. When when Donald Trump was banned, I was like, thank God the malignant tumor is gone. Praise Jesus, praise Satan, hail Satan. He's he's off my platform. <laughs> like I think a lot of people had that reaction. Yeah. Is the impression I get. Yes, yeah. I'm I'm like fantastic. A platform as giant as Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, they are basically now the public square, but privatized. How do we navigate that? How do we navigate the banning of Donald Trump? How do we navigate banning Milo Yiannopoulos? How do we, just all of that stuff, how do we navigate that in this kind of brave new world of gigantic tech platforms? So, so first of all, the, the easy part is obviously the law. Legally, they, they can do that. that. And I think legally they should be able to do that. I think 
it would be, un- it, well, I don't think, it, it would be flatly unconstitutional to require them to publish speech of people they don't like, period. You can't just take a private company's platform and force them to speak. That's compelled speech. That's like forcing someone to, to like say the Lord's Prayer. You just can't do it. Got it. But <laughs> from a free speech culture standpoint, and this is something I should have said earlier, is that, you know, about this idea of like free speech law being enough. Well, Russia has a constitutional provision for, for, for free speech. North Korea protects free speech in their constitution. Turkey protects free speech in their constitution. These are places that imprison journalists like it, like nothing. So having it in your law isn't enough to give it meaning. It's like the First Amendment means functionally whatever we as a society decide it means, whatever meaning we give it. And I get nervous cheering for the idea that the First Amendment means the government can't silence you, but the private corporations can. Because I, I don't feel like the private corporations are more likely to be concerned with, with my well-being than the government. I mean, I'm skeptical of the government, but I'm not. it's not like I'm skeptical of the government because I think Mark Zuckerberg is like my benevolent uncle, yeah. right? Like, and, and, I'm, and I was just yeah. I was seeing the same people, the same people who were saying that Russia was a, was a malignant actor who corrupted our elections by buying Facebook ads are now saying that Facebook is good because they banned Donald Trump. This doesn't seem like an ideologically principled position to me. I'm concerned mm. that w- we think that it's bad if Russia buys an ad because we might see the ad, but it's good if Facebook decides what we should or shouldn't see. And and part of the thing that makes Donald Trump the wrong poster child for the conversation is because he's a he's a known, right? We know <laughs> even if you ban Donald Trump, we sort of know what that what, what he was going to post and what it was going to look like. The problem is once Facebook has the power to ban people, we don't know what else they're banning. So like we can cheer for banning Donald Trump, but we don't know who else they've decided to ban. So I have several thoughts here. One is I work for a small locally owned business. My small locally owned business, we have freedom of speech. If we wanted to put a big gay pride flag in our window, we can do that. If we wanted to put a a Black Lives Matter flag, we can do that. There would be a lot of conservatives up here in the mountains who would fucking hate that, but, but we can do that. And that's fine. I guess what I'm hearing is that there is a problem of scaling. There's a problem of like, say my company becomes this massive, gigantic, you know, we become like Microsoft. We, sp- we start in my garage and then it scales up and, and we become this monopoly. That's when it becomes more challenging. Like, because what applies equally to a tiny business applies to a gigantic business, right? That's, that's exactly the problem. So on the one hand, just as I think, think through this out loud, encroaching on the, on the freedoms of a big business, could that come blow back to small businesses? It, that, that's, that's certainly a fear. I mean, one of the things that, that is interesting about this conversation is that we're, we're putting like Amazon, Facebook, and Twitter in the same bucket in, in, in a certain sense. And one of these things is not like the others in that Amazon is huge. Facebook is huge. Twitter comparatively is not that huge. Yeah. Like, it only has like 2 million users or something. Right. So that yeah. I'm, I'm not super troubled by banning, by banning Trump. Like, yes, there's a place where a lot of people have decided this is where we're going to have the conversation, but just the, the difference in scope is just easy to see by the virtue of, you know, parlor and gab popping up where's the alternative Amazon to the alternative Facebook, right? Like there's a, I guess there's some alternative Facebooks out there, but like alternative Amazon, is anyone even trying to say, well, I'm going to make my own network backbone. That's going to compete with Amazon. So this is when my, when my socialist comes out. So I hear a lot of 
far leftists suddenly becoming massive libertarians when they talk about <laughs> when they yes, when they this today. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I, suddenly, you know, suddenly all these far leftists become like massive libertarians. Like, oh, they, you know, private businesses can do whatever the fuck they want. This is perfectly fine. This is perfectly right, fine. Like government paid health care universal basic income and the private, the private businesses, businesses can do whatever can do, they want it's yes exactly and, and i'm just like literally half a second ago you were talking about workers rights literally half a half a second ago you were talking about antitrust like how do i even want to begin to say this maybe i haven't had enough coffee today or maybe these ideas are just really super big and i'm struggling to wrap my head around them i see when when alex jones was deplatformed a lot of people lost their mind. And what I wanted to say to them was Alex Jones being platformed is literally the least Orwellian, Huxleyan thing these platforms do to us. They track our every step. They track your skin tone to track your responses to ads. They are manipulating you. They are hoarding your data and selling it to third parties with your kind of tacit permission, but only because you don't understand it. The the amount of scary draconian shit that they are doing is mind boggling. Honestly, them banning Alex Jones is like just the very tip of the iceberg. And then on the other hand, to the leftists who who were celebrating and I was and I still am one of them. I'm like, yes, thank God. Alex Jones is gone. <laughs> Praise gibbers. Like that's fantastic. But at the same time, where do limits and protections within businesses that leftists and socialists are always talking about? How does that fit in to this? And it's just like, I don't know. I I'm so ambivalent. I think it is totally reasonable to be ambivalent about the shutting down of Parler, I think is totally reasonable to be ambivalent, deeply ambivalent about Alex Jones being deplatformed because on the one hand, I'm like, I think this is good for society. On the other hand, I'm like, maybe, maybe it isn't. And maybe there are deeper problems within these businesses that would have to be addressed. I don't even know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I can certainly, as, uh, I'll, I'll take on the role of, of, uh, of cleric of the First Amendment and, and say that I absolve you of your guilt for that tension. That that <laughs> Thank is <you>. um, <laughs> yeah. normal and healthy. Like it is, it is normal and healthy because because and, and this this is one a point that in terms of free speech culture, I have to I have to make for people a lot is that free speech culture is not natural. Like natural yeah. human order is, I'm bigger than you and I'm going to beat the shit out of you until I get my way. That's what we did for that's what we did for many many centuries. It's it's un, it's contrary to our instincts to have a free speech culture. And because it's contrary to our instincts, we're going to have those moments where bad things happen to bad people. And it's really, you know, every emotional response we have is going to be fucking good. Like, yeah, I was hoping something bad would happen to this guy. I was sick of him anyway. And then we have to go to the second step and say, you know, he may be pond scum, but even pond scum has a place in this First Amendment culture we're trying to make. And that's where you get into compromises and, and you get you get into these difficult questions of, well, if, if I'm saying it's good that he's banned from this big platform, but I don't necessarily want him obliterated from the internet because it's bad to have the power to obliterate people from the internet. How do we, how do we change the structure of our regulatory systems so that it's possible for someone with a repulsive opinion to have their own little corner while still having 
the, the freedom for people who have businesses to kick them out and to say, I don't like this guy. I don't want to be associated with this guy. And, and, that, and that's a legitimate concern for, you know, anybody. But I, I, I can't I can't cry for Amazon, but like businesses that aren't quite at that scale. I understand that just because, you know, you have 20,000 employees doesn't necessarily mean it isn't important to you to land the Gerber ads or whatever that you're trying to keep yourself safe for safe for mm. Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What do you think of the term hate speech? It's to me, it's it's the same thing as as uh, tolerant of intolerance. It's like who, do, okay. who who decides what's hate? If hate just means it's something I intensely don't like, then I intensely don't like lots of things, but I should be allowed to express that. I mean, there's an argument that like, because it, it, it just like the domestic tranquility thing, there was an argument that civil rights marches were hate were hateful. Yeah. Right. They were saying, oh, we hate. We hate the government and we hate society because, well, you know, because it's institutionally racist, but that's still hate. They're still saying hate. So, or they're expressing a, a hostile feeling towards someone. Hmm. Uh, whoever has the power to, dis whoever has the power is going to decide what hate means. Right. And that's been true in, in Europe where there's been hate speech legislation. You see that everyone passes hate speech and they all say, oh, we're going to use it to protect the marginalized communities. And who do they go after? They go after Palestinian activists. They go after people who, who call the leaders of the country names, right? They're, they're not asking the government to take power to protect the marginalized just doesn't ever work. Yeah. And, you know, there was something that you said a minute ago that I think is worth coming back to, which is free speech culture and just all the new and nuances of that, like is are is me banning turfs from my Discord server a free free speech culture issue or not? I don't think it is, but it's interesting to have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, but you, you know, you you have to decide what the purpose of your server is, and and if it can be served by having turfs on it, and and maybe it can't. Yeah, but like the free speech culture also needs to have those second level conversations. Yes, got exactly. And, and this is actually why. I can turn this around to to another example of Fire's work, where we we opposed uh, the Supreme Court's decision in, in uh, uh, Southworth. I think was the case I'm thinking of, where they they required well, no, it wasn't Southworth. It was was it Christian Legal Society? Maybe they they said that it was lawful for a college to have an all comers policy and require student groups to take all students. And an all comers uh, policy. What does that mean? All comers policy means you can't, as a student group have a restriction on who can join. Okay. And this was a this was a Christian student group that said you can join the group but you can't be leadership if you're not Christian. Like if you don't accept Jesus as your savior, you can't run the group. And the college said that's not good enough. You have to accept anybody huh. as the leader of the group. So I as, you know, atheist, satanic, gay, <laughs> I could become a leader in that group under this policy. They are required to accept you as a leader of the group. And that would make it not Christian anymore. That's the argument, isn't it? I mean, and, 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 and you can see why this is something we would oppose, because when you make that rule, you think that's going to be the end of it? Or no, of course not, because the TERFs are going to join the trans group, Ex right? You're exactly. going to have Jews running the Muslim students organization. You're going to have Republicans running the Democrats. You're, 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 you're taking all of those necessary conversations, which you can only have by getting people, like-minded people in a room to have that conversation, and you're just derailing all of them. You can't have 
any actual conversations w within your group. Okay, so that's really interesting. So, so free speech extends to allowing people to protect spaces to have what you called those secondary or second level conversations. Well, that's freedom of association too, right? right. Like, and that's coequal to free speech. It's in the same in the, in the same amendment. So, yes, like you have to be able to free and and, and free association by its nature means freedom to not associate, freedom to disassociate. Because otherwise, that's not free association. That's just everybody's required to associate with everybody. The freedom to, to yeah, so the freedom for me to uh, place the ban hammer on someone, that is me practicing my freedom of association on my Discord server. Exactly. Got it. Yes, that makes And your freedom of speech, too. It's like they, they, they intersect yeah. happily yeah, 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 there, yeah. where you can say, this is this is the place where we have the conversations about us. This is this is us. Yes. When we go out there, we'll have the conversation with you. But here, this is us. I think that's fantastic. I, I think that's a very good way of articulating this. Now, let, let's talk some about stereotypes of left and right, because I feel like at least in the circles that I have run in, free speech, just as a term, as a concept, has become a right-wing term. I feel like it has become kind of cringe. It's, it's kind of cringe. It's kind of eye-roll, like, oh, look at this chud talking about free speech. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at this rube, this, this you know, right-wing logic bro talking about free speech and and it it elicits this cringe response i think for a lot of leftists and then the right perceives the left as being very anti-free speech as as cracking down on on free speech and not believing in free speech and as someone who works in this area as someone who who lives and breathes this conversation is denial of free speech is trying to shut down other people's first amendment rights is that something that manifests exclusively on one side or is it a human problem i'm i'm glad you brought this up because there's a big disconnect between the public perception of what's going on and what's going on the the, the easy answer is that yes it is definitely a universal human problem I see censorship from every direction. And the most common censorship is from no direction. The most common censorship is about people in power who are inconvenienced by people not in power. On the college campus, that means a student who said something that's uncomfortable for the administration. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, we, we just sent a letter today about uh, Haskell Indian Nations University, where the college president told a student reporter not to report because he was asking uncomfortable questions. Huh. And he felt that asking these questions was disrespectful. I mean, that's an example of, this isn't about left or right. This is about, you're a pain to me and I want you to be quiet. Yeah, um, And that's the by far the most common. Mm. Uh, and in this is a very mild defense of uh, college administrators, but I should say it, nobody calls me to tell me what a great time they're having with their college administration. I only hear problems. <laughs> I, that doesn't make it normative. That just means I only, that's people just don't call me to tell me if everything's great. So <laughs> I hear the problem there. I'm sure most administrators aren't like this. Most are just fine. Sure. But within that, within that space, I hear just horror stories after horror stories about this power imbalance in terms of left and right. Um, part of that is driven by the demographics of the university. Okay. Where if you go back 30, 40 years, right? 30, 40 years ago, free speech was something that the left talked about. It's the Berkeley free speech movement. It's Martin Luther King. Free exactly. speech was the left. Exactly. And it was, it was on the right where people were just, oh, so sick of hearing about this free speech, just you know, so that they can have their deviant lifestyles. Everyone's talking about free speech, <laughs> right? Well, that even then, universities were probably three liberals to one conservative in terms of their administration. Because mm. this was a job, education is a job that has always attracted 
people who are concerned with relationships and individuals and development of human beings, and they tend to be slightly left of center. They're not necessarily concerned with um, states, institutions, governments in the same way. Now, the, 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 obviously, that's there's an asterisk because dis some disciplines have been more conservative than others. Um, heart surgeons tend to be more conservative. Jet pilots tend to be more conservative. Huh. These are places you probably want someone not to be too unusual of a thinker. <laughs> <laughs> and it attracts. You probably want your. It self selects. Yeah. I mean, there are places that just self select for certain personality types, and certain personality types, like openness to experience, can can determine someone's kind of political affiliation. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, since the seventies, when it was about four to one, right now, depending on disciplines, it's. Overall, colleges are about 12 liberal faculty members per conservative. And depending on which discipline you're in, if you're in the social sciences, it's 44 liberals per conservative. And those conservatives tend to be older and rotating out. The reason I bring this up is because the perception that the left is intolerant of free speech is a lot driven by the censorship on campus. And since on campus, it's the left that's in power more, you tend to see more censorship of conservatives in this one particular metric, in this one particular alignment. That doesn't mean that there aren't, there, there definitely are liberals being censored. They're being censored by conservatives. Sometimes it's liberals being censored by further left liberals. But in general, there is just as much censorship coming from the right. It's just coming from off campus onto campus. Right. And this is where you see, the, you know, a professor makes a joke. Like was, uh, they, they, a white genocide. White genocide. I was thinking of the Babson professor who talked about uh, the Ayatollah ought to name fifty-two American cultural sites he's gonna he's gonna destroy. Right. Of course, the joke joke being, can you name fifty-two American cultural <laughs> heritage sites? And conservatives came right for their heads. Conservatives, oh, you can't let them say this terrible thing. There was an Essex County College. It's a new, that's a New Jersey community college where she went. The, the professor got terminated essentially because she went on Fox on Tucker Carlson and made fun of Tucker Carlson complaining that there was a Black Lives Matter only 4th of July bar barbecue. And it's like, oh, your white privilege crowd won't get you into this one thing, boo hoo hoo. And of course, on the right, people lost their mind and went after her. <laughs> so the, the perception that there's no censorship coming from that, that direction or that there isn't free speech, there isn't a free speech problem in of, of conservative censoring liberals is just, they're not physically on campus, so we don't see them as much. Right. But there is just as much of that pressure coming because so much of this perception is driven by the snapshots we take of the campus and the campus is so overwhelmingly liberal and by liberal I mean left people on the left have power not that they're actually liberals but that people with left ideology have power they use it to suppress conservatives on campus so it's a big miss it's a big misconception just by the the alignments of these uh, of these institutions. So basically what I'm hearing you say is that it's about who's in power and it's about human beings being in power. This is what Oh yeah. human this is what human beings do. This isn't exclusive to the right or to the left or center. This is human behavior. This is a human impulse, which I think is why Greg Lukianoff, you know, he has a blog called the eternally radical idea. And he explained that that phrasing, which is free speech, is the eternally radical idea. It is it is this idea that is radical in all times, in all places, because it is so contrary to our nature. Yeah, he, he has another uh, term he uses called uh, censorship gravity, and which is this idea that the higher you get in power, the more powerful the draw back into censorship is, huh. which is sort of how you explain you have figures like John Adams being a founding father talking about liberty and then the Alien and Sedition Acts happen. Well, he didn't have power when he was talking about liberty. He was talking about liberty when he was going against the powerful British, 
When he had power, suddenly the Alien and Sedition Acts happened. Now, here's a list of things you can't say about the government, as if he himself would not have been imprisoned under that right. for the things he said about the British government. <laughs> okay, for people who don't know, tell them what the Alien and Sedition Act is. The, the Alien and, and Sedition Act it was you know, the, the first Congress's immediate retreat from, from liberty, where there were a bunch of, there was a fear of war with France, hmm. and to avert or to allay that concern, anyone who said anything that could have been construed as anti-government could be detained indefinitely. Right. So it's recognized today as one of the most monumentally unconstitutional things our government has done on par with internment camps in World War II. Mm -hmm. And it's when you're looking for an example of times we didn't live up to our promise and you know you've moved past you moved past the basic premise of, of of slavery this is one of the top three or four things you would come up with is that what could the first amendment really have meant if the alien sedition acts were actually consistent with it and of course they weren't consistent with it they were an example of somebody somebody having great ideals when they didn't have the power um i i, I will say that modern historians have sort of redeemed john adams a little bit and they've kind of said well the steps he actually, like, he did do this, but he, he didn't really use it against, I mean, he himself never invoked it. He, he supported right. it, but he himself never actually imprisoned anyone. And his reputation was tarnished in part because he negotiated with France to avert the war. And that was seen as being sort of like soft and disloyal, when in reality, he averted a war that would have cost tens of thousands of American lives, if not hundreds. So that in this weird way, he was bad on free speech, but kind of a hero. So, but that's the modern interpretation. Certainly there's no question that the Alien and Sedition Acts were contrary to the First Amendment, contrary to free speech culture. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a great note to end on, just that, you know, free speech is uncomfortable and that what's important is that we keep talking as as a culture as a community that having hard conversations is uh what it means to be human and that we should just keep doing that and it's okay to mess up is the other thing i would say about it. it's yeah it's okay to, to to get the line wrong it's okay to not be sure you're doing the right thing i think if we're if we try to be of good conscience hear each other and care about each other then we will make it through even if at times you know there's times when i in other contexts i would censor somebody and you have to go back and say you know what I, I had a I had a gut reaction and I went too far. And there's times where I didn't censor somebody and I should have said, you know what, you probably need to you need to find a new newspaper to write for type thing where like this is, you know. Yeah, I, I had an experience like that actually several weeks ago where I did not practice the best judgment. And I had someone on my show who said things that I wish he hadn't said. Or, or that I wish that I had responded to better. I'll probably do a, a, another show about that and just kind of a, a post-mortem. Yeah, it, it happens. This is a, all a work in progress. We're all figuring this shit out. And it is, it is entirely kind of counterintuitive to us. Like, it, it feels like we're co-opting parts of our brain that were evolved for completely different purposes to do this incredibly new exercise that, you know, is totally new in our human development. In the full scope of human history, this... This idea of speech and talking things through and all of that stuff, it is just incredibly new and incredibly challenging. And I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, I, I, I think we're all going to be figuring it out for the rest of our days. And that the the one great virtue of free speech above the individual liberty is that there's always a chance. You know, they always say there's always going to be someone smarter than you. My, my, my fervent hope is that people smarter than me come along and have more refined ideas of how to actually live the liberty that I, I'm, I'm trying to preserve for everyone, right? Like, I feel like mm -hmm. the, the, the great virtue is, I, at least I'm not silencing the people smarter than me. <laughs> if I'm Absolutely. wrong, they will come along and they, and they will fix it. <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been great. For people who are interested in your work, where can they learn more about FIRE? Check out thefire.org. Beautiful. Yeah, everyone go check it out. It is super interesting. And by the way, I want to hear back from you. If you agree, if you disagree, please go to my Discord server. Most of the conversation about my episodes and articles takes place on my Discord server. There is a link in the show notes. You can also always leave a public comment on my website for this post at stephenbradfordlong.com. You can also write me an email. Just please don't send me death threats. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or dick pics. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for this show. As always, the music is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleven D Seven. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Living this caffeine dream is taking its toll on me. I worship the chemicals. Blurring this line between love and dopamine until it's invisible. What's in my own thoughts? Suffocate, drowning under amber waves of that space, sucking in some rat race. Yeah.
Breaking Armageddon in my head until there's nothing left. It's a blue pill kind of life when you haven't lived one yet. I skip myself. 